You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So next month, August, marks seven years since my family and I moved from Texas to Boston to plant Seven Mile Road. I don't know if you've ever driven that distance, but it takes, per Google Maps, 27 hours. Now, you know, that's without stops, and we have lots of children, so that's impossible to not stop. You have to get gas and um, snacks and all those kinds of things, and so with kids and all the cargo, we chose to break that trip up into several days. So we usually tackle about nine or ten hours of, of driving each day, stay somewhere, and then get up the next day and go. And so we're on the last leg of our trip, and uh, we're, we're making our way through New York, and we mistakenly put our trust in Google Maps. And the, the route had us go through Manhattan instead of going north, all right? Okay, it's a rookie mistake. It's the only time we've ever done that. So it routes us through Manhattan to get uh, to 95 instead of going north to avoid the city altogether. And uh, as we approached Manhattan, I was getting low on gas. Now I thought, it's not a big deal. I'm not even on E yet. The light hasn't come on. Once we get through the city, we'll we'll stop and get some gas. Um, But then we came to the parking lot known as the George Washington Bridge. (laughs) Everyone laughing knows exactly what I'm talking about. We were moving fine until we got to that bridge. Gridlock is an understatement. We sat there for hours. And you know when you sit there, you you, you start to actually breathe in the fumes that are coming in to your car. People are honking for no reason. It's like like the only thing you could do. Like all the frustration is like, well, at least I can honk. It's no one's fault in particular, but everyone's just honking. And with each passing minute, my fear of running out of gas on that bridge began to escalate. I just start to get anxious. The light did eventually come on. And I'm just watching that thing, you know, go back towards empty. And I'm like, what do you do? What do you do if you run out of gas on this bridge? There's nowhere to go. Like, will people just murder you right there? (laughs) I was stuck. Nowhere to go, no hope in sight. Have you ever felt stuck? Like there was nothing you could do. No hope in sight. No plan for how to get out. The pressure of the situation is closing in on you. Wearing you out. Panic eventually yields to despair because all hope has been lost. You ever been in that place? We don't just get stuck emotionally. Or situationally, sometimes we get, get stuck in all sorts of other ways. Maybe the last couple of years of going through a worldwide pandemic has you feeling stuck. Perhaps difficulty in relationships has you feeling stuck. Finding a spouse is hard. Marriage is even harder. Relationships are hard. Getting along with people just in everyday situations is hard. And you can often feel stuck. Parenting. All the parents in the room know that parenting is rewarding 
yet incredibly tiring, incredibly exhausting. You get to these moments, these different situations and time periods in the life of your children, and you just feel stuck. You just can't get past that next barrier. Perhaps it's pressure at work. You've got a project due. Everyone's counting on you. And you don't know the solution. And you feel stuck. Maybe you're going through a particular trial where you're being treated unjustly. And it seems like justice is nowhere to be found. Nothing is working out and you feel stuck. Maybe there's an addictive uh, pattern in your life, a behavior that is destructive. And as much as you try and try and try, you just can't seem to get past it. And you feel stuck. Or maybe it's just the normal, everyday, monotonous grind of life. Feels like the back of a shampoo bottle, wash, rinse, repeat, and it's always the same. And you feel stuck. Any one of these and hundreds more can get you stuck like gridlock on the Washington Bridge. And no matter what lane you move in, no matter what you do, you feel like you're going to run out of gas and be stuck there forever. And not to be the bearer of bad news, but looming on the horizon before all of us is the gridlock of death that looms for all of us. That's a definite kind of stuckness, isn't it? And when the time comes for you to cross that bridge, how will you get unstuck from that? This morning we're looking at Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. And we meet two disciples of Jesus who are walking back home from Jerusalem. And it's in the aftermath of the crucifixion of Jesus. And they're trying to process everything that's happened and they're stuck. They're stuck. The death of Christ has put them in the gridlock of despondency. All their hopes have shattered. Their purpose is gone. All that excitement, all that anticipation of what Jesus the Messiah was going to do has vanished. All of the hope of where Jesus would leave them has disappeared. And this passage is so beautiful because it's the story of how they get unstuck. And not only is it the story of how they get unstuck, but it's actually the story for humanity. Of how all of humanity gets unstuck. It's actually the seven mile road story. It's where our churches get its name. And it tells us about how life gets unstuck from death. And as we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to see two spiritual equations that dramatically impact how we live our lives. This story is really broken up into two parts. There's this dramatic hinge in this story. And so here's our first equation. And and, and if you're going, oh no, I, I wasn't prepared for this. I didn't do so well in math. It's okay. These are easy equations. So in verses 13 to 24, we're going to see our first equation. And it goes like this. Life minus resurrection equals despair. Life without resurrection leads to despair. See, without resurrection, there is no getting unstuck from death. And because there's no way to get out of the ultimate situation like death, that means all of life ultimately ends in despair. But second, when this story takes a turn in verses 25 to 32, we'll see that life plus resurrection equals hope. Life plus resurrection equals hope. 
Because of resurrection, we can get unstuck from death, and therefore, we can have hope. So let's start together in verse 13 to see this first equation. Life minus resurrection equals despair. Here again, the word of the Lord in verse 13. That very day, two of them, these are two of Jesus' disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles, you hear that? Seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So for these two disciples, it's been an awful, eventful weekend. Jesus, their leader, has been arrested, he's been executed, and he's been buried. Matthew tells us there's even been reports that his body has gone missing from the tomb. But for them it doesn't matter, right? Jesus is dead, so there's nothing left to do except go home. Go home. Go, go back to their old lives before Jesus. And so they're walking back on the, on the seven-mile road back home to Emmaus, and they're reviewing what's happened. Now, isn't that what we do when we experience hard things? We, even though we, we were there, even though we were um, in the middle of it, when we go through stressful situations, uh, we often need to process what happened verbally. It, it's part of the, the therapy of getting over it. We, we talk about it. So you rehearse the events. You, you, you talk about the timelines, you, you share with someone the emotions that you were experiencing so that you can deal with what's happened. See, when you've experienced what they've experienced, seeing their hope shattered on a Roman cross, you need to process it. You can't just stay silent. And so that's what they're doing as they walk on the seven-mile road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. See, we know something they don't know. We know this person is Jesus, but these two disciples don't. So as the audience reading this piece of literature, we have information that the main characters don't know. And Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And the two disciples stood still looking sad. So Luke tells us Jesus side saddles up next to them, kind of out of nowhere, and starts to talk with them. But they don't know it's Jesus because their eyes were kept from seeing them, from seeing him. So Jesus asks them, hey, what are you guys talking about? And uh, they start to tell him what's going on. Now the very question itself stops them in their tracks. Do you see them on this road? They're walking, they're talking. Uh, this man comes up, asks them what they're talking about. They're still walking. And he says, hey, why are you so sad? And they stop. Like they can't imagine anybody coming from Jerusalem doesn't know what's happened. It, it, it's impossible that you could have been in Jerusalem and not know the events that have just taken place. It stops them in their tracks. They stay still. They're stunned by the question. And, and, and Luke tells us sadness is written all over their face. Anyone in here have a hard time hiding their emotions? I, I wear mine on my sleeve. You know exactly how I feel. Madness, sadness, whatever. I, I'm not, I can't hide it. And the sadness is written all over their face. Now why are they sad? Again, they're sad because Jesus has just been executed on a Roman cross. And they know you don't come back from that. There might be some kind forms of torture and things where, where you might survive it. But nobody survives crucifixion. 
It's the death you don't come back from. So that's it. It's over. There's no getting unstuck from that kind of death. So when Jesus died, all of their hope vacated and sadness has now taken its place. Verse 18. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, this is Jesus, what things? And they, these two disciples, said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a mighty, uh, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Okay, a lot to unpack here. It's inconceivable to this guy, Cleopas, that someone could have been in Jerusalem and not know about everything that's just taken place. But regardless, they catch this traveler up on, uh, on the events, and he does so in short order. So they tell him, hey, there was this guy, Jesus. He was from Nazareth. He was actually a prophet, mighty in word and in deed. And in one sentence, they're trying to capture and summarize the life and ministry of Jesus. He was a prophet, and, and, and the way that he spoke was um, authoritative. He had unrivaled an unparalleled clarity and authority when he spoke. And his ministry was, was surrounded and affirmed by the kind of miracles and um, signs that were, that were mighty. They were, they were becoming of one sent by God is what he's trying to tell them. And all of this led the disciples to a right and proper belief that this Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one that all of Israel's hopes had been hanging on for hundreds of years. That Jesus was the one. He's the one we've been waiting for to deliver us from evil. He is the deliverer, the one that was coming. But he was rejected by the Jewish, Jewish leadership. And he was handed over, delivered up to the Roman government to be executed by crucifixion. And with his execution... Their hopes were crushed and their dreams died. Did you see that when he said, we had hoped? We had hope, but it's gone. It was there and it's no longer there. We had hoped, it's gone. You hear the past tense there. He was the one to redeem Israel, but not anymore. How can you redeem Israel if you're dead? Their hopes, in other words, were crucified right along with Jesus. Verse 22, moreover... This is Cleopas talking. Some, of, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him, Jesus, they did not see. Now, the, these two disciples, Cleopas and the other guy, they're, they're, they're summarizing what you see in Luke 24, 1 through 12. So what happens in those verses is some of the women who were disciples of Jesus, they had gone to the tomb to ensure that Jesus' body had been properly buried according to Jewish custom. See, the, the, the concern was that um, because the crucifixion took place on a Friday and Sabbath begins Friday evening, that, he, that, that they got to get them off the cross, get them in the tomb, and get back to their homes um, to, to, to observe um, the Sabbath. And so there was concern that his burial process had been rushed. So they're going back after the Sabbath 
on Sunday morning to finish the job. But when they arrived at the tomb, the stone had already been rolled away and the body of their Lord Jesus was gone. And so Luke tells us that the women were perplexed by this. That's a really important thing. They were perplexed, which means they weren't expecting what they saw. If they had been expecting resurrection, they would have gone expecting the tomb to be rolled away. But when they got there, it, it, it wasn't. They expected to see a stone already there and they were going to have to convince the guards to open it up so that they could properly bury Jesus. But that's not what they found. So they were perplexed. They expected to find a dead body, not an empty tomb. And at that point, Luke writes these words, 24 verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they, these women, remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, do the men believe them? Answer, no. Luke says that they considered the account of the women to be an idle tale and they did not believe them. So on one hand, just someone coming back from the dead is hard to believe in general. But in this culture at this time, the testimony of women wasn't even admissible in court. So on two accounts, they don't believe the women. The women say, listen, Jesus is, has risen. We've seen these angels and he's not there. And they're going, yeah, that, yeah, okay. Sit down, have some water. That's not what happened. They don't believe that Jesus has risen from the grave. Now here's where we uh, find our first equation. Life minus resurrection equals despair. See, even with the evidence of the empty tomb, even though Jesus regularly told his disciples, he told them, you can read this in the Gospels regularly, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to rise on the third day. No matter how many times he told them, they did not believe them. He told them. But Jesus' words were not enough to overcome their deeply held belief that dead men stay dead. Can you blame them? Don't we have the same belief that when someone dies, they stay dead? See, death is so final and formidable an enemy that no one believes you can escape death. No one expected Jesus to rise again. Even Jesus, no one expected it. They expected him to stay dead. Now, often as modern people, we look back on ancient people and think that they're stupid. But there's just kind of a, a modern bias where we think ancient people, they're really gullible. Uh, they, they would, it, it would have been easy for them to have, you know, the, uh, 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 to be fooled by false stories. And friends, I would argue that this is incredibly arrogant. In fact, I would say ancient people are far more acquainted with death than we are. You know why? There were no hospitals at this time. No ambulances, no morgues, no funeral homes. So when someone died, they were often right there with them in their home watching them die. They held their loved ones as they died. And there's no mortician. So who prepares the bodies? They do. Who buries them? They do. There's no services around to pay to do this. You bury your own dead. 
They knew dead people stay dead. They saw it face to face. Friends, they weren't gullible in the face of death. It was an everyday reality for them. If you read the histories, you know that nobody believed in resurrection. For the Greeks at this time, the idea of an embodied, resurrected life after death was not not only impossible, it wasn't desirable. Because according to Greek philosophy, death is what frees the soul out of the prison of the body. So so why would you want to be put back into a body? It, it, It was undesirable. See, in their philosophy, the soul is trying to escape the body, not re-enter one, which is what resurrection is all about. It's, it's, it's bringing the body back. The Greek pray, uh, playwright Aeschylus wrote this. Once a man has died and the dust has soaked up his blood, there is no resurrection. For the Jews at this time, many of them outright rejected resurrection just as a as a categorical reality he said there is no resurrection though some believed in a resurrection but it was a future resurrection at the end of all time not one that's happening in this moment so what i'm saying is nobody at this time had a category of thought in their mind for an individual person to be resurrected not only that They didn't have a category in their mind for a suffering and resurrection of the Messiah. So the reason I'm saying all of this is this. It was just as unbelievable for them at this time to believe in resurrection, to believe that someone could come back from the dead as it is for us today. That's why these two guys left Jerusalem. Think about it. If they had believed in resurrection, they would have stayed in Jerusalem awaiting for Jesus. But what do they do? They pack it up and they go home. The gig was up. The party was over. There was nothing to do except go back to their ordinary lives. This disciple-making movement that they had been all excited about was over. The Redeemer was dead. Nothing to do but go home. At this point in their minds, the only logical conclusion, if there really was an empty tomb, was that someone must have taken the body. If they even had a glimmer of thought that maybe Jesus didn't die but had survived the crucifixion. So that when they put him in, he was, you know, like mostly dead but not all dead. If they had that in their mind, what would they have done? They would have stayed in Jerusalem looking for this bloodied, beat up Jesus. But that's not what they did. You know why? Because nobody survives crucifixion on a Roman cross. Executioners did their job. Did you know at this time, according to Roman law... If you were the executioner, if you were in charge to put someone to death and you failed to do your job, you know what happens to you? You get crucified. So that's skin in the game, right? If you're going, listen, it's either me or him. They're going to make sure they do their job. You think it was Bill Belichick who invented the phrase, do your job? No, it's the Roman government. Do your job. Yes, sir. Their job was to crucify and kill Jesus, and they did their job. The Persians may have invented crucifixion, but the Romans had perfected it. And Jesus was no different. And just to ensure that Jesus was dead, as he hung on the cross, a Roman centurion drove a spear into his side. And the Bible tells us that blood and water flowed out of that wound. Blood, because that's what happens when you're cut. And water, because when the spear punctured his lungs, 
it had begun to fill with water because that's essentially what happens when you're crucified. You, you essentially drown from the inside out as your lungs fill with water. They watched him die and he was buried in a rich man's tomb. So for them, the only conceivable explanation to account for the evidence of an empty tomb was that someone had taken the body. And for them, that changed nothing. He's dead. What difference does it make where his body goes? Jesus was dead and hope was lost. Death was the end of Jesus. And for them, they realized death will one day be the end of them. And so all that was left to do was to go home, go back to their lives, and await the inevitable. See, friends, if life ultimately ends in death, period, if, if all of life is eventually swallowed up by death, then there's no getting out of that gridlock. And ultimately, you end with despair. William Shakespeare captures this sentiment in Macbeth. He's, he writes, life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Life without resurrection equals despair. You're there on the stage for a moment and then you're gone. And there's nothing left. You can put it away in the back of your mind. You can try to find as much meaning as possible in this life that you create for yourself. But ultimately, if there is no re resurrection, all of life ends in despair. Ultimately, death wins. Life minus resurrection equals despair. But thankfully, there's more to the story. Let's keep going to see that life plus resurrection equals hope. Verse 25. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus responds to their lack of understanding with a rebuke. And he tells them that the reason they don't understand what's going on is that they are slow of heart to believe what the prophets have already spoken. The Old Testament had spoken of a suffering and ultimate triumph of the Messiah. And he's basically saying your problem is not a lack of information, but a lack of belief. What he's saying is if you had, if you had really studied the scriptures, if you had really looked at the Old Testament and really given yourself to what, to, to the total picture of who the Messiah was and going to be and, and what he would go through, you would have come to the same conclusion. So what Jesus does is he starts to unpack the Old Testament. He gives them a crash course in seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And he begins with the books of Moses and he works his way through the prophets. And I guarantee you he would have uh, brought them to Isaiah 52 and 53 where we see the suffering and triumph of the servant of the Lord. Look at Isaiah 53 with me, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore... I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the, transgress with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many 
and makes intercession for the transgressors. What we find here is that this servant, this Messiah, is crushed for our iniquities. His life is given as an offering for the guilty. He bears the sins of many. And yet, you see, even though he is crushed, he will see the work of his hands and be satisfied. His days shall be prolonged and he will prosper. The one who is pierced will ultimately be the one who brings triumphant redemption. Now, I'll give you. This text doesn't come right out and say that God will send his son. His name will be Jesus. He'll be crucified one day on a Roman cross and on the third day rise again. But the framework is there, church. It is there to create the category of a suffering yet triumphant Messiah. And not only that, Jesus told his disciples that's how it would be. Verse 28. So they keep walking. They drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So Jesus went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. So as they approach Emmaus, they invite Jesus to stay with them. The day is spent and evening is approaching. And at that time, you didn't really want to be out on open roads at night. And so they say, why don't you come in, eat dinner with us, stay with us. We want to continue to hear more of what you have to say. And as they begin their meal, the honored guest takes the role of the host. He's the one who gives uh, thanks for the meal. He's the one who prays to bless it. He's the one who breaks the bread, which is interesting because that's not what the guest should do. It really should be the, 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 the person's home. But Jesus, because he's, you know, Lord and Savior, he just steps right into that role as the gracious host. And he blesses and he takes the bread. And, and as he does, verse 31 tells us, their eyes were opened. This is the hinge. This is where the story changes. And they recognized him. Earlier, Luke says they did not recognize him. And now Luke says, and now they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. So just as quickly as he came, he's gone. And they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked, while he talked to us on the road, on that seven mile road, while he opened to us the scriptures. In that moment, their eyes were opened. Earlier, they were kept from seeing him. Now it's the right time. And the Lord opens their eyes and they recognize it's Jesus. The veil is lifted and they see him. And just as quickly, he vanishes from their sights. And you can imagine, they start, they're trying to get their minds and their hearts around what's just happened. And they're, they're, they're reflecting back, like, as we were walking, didn't you start to feel hope rise in your heart? Did our hearts not burn as he was opening to us the scripture? See, Jesus is talking to them about a suffering yet triumphant Messiah and hope begins to build. The embers were still there. Their hopes hadn't been completely crushed. You know, the, you know a campfire the next morning? You think it's out, but if you'll dig around a little bit, what's down at the bottom? Embers. And if you will cultivate that, those embers, you will get your morning fire. That's what happened. As Jesus spoke with them, their minds and their hearts started to burn again, to believe in the hope of redemption and resurrection. Now at this time, they couldn't put all the pieces together, but they knew something special was happening. And when their eyes finally saw Jesus, when they were aware that they were sitting and eating and dining with their resurrected Lord, everything changed. 
everything. Here's the point. Only the presence of a risen Jesus could have changed their mind. The reason I spent so much time talking about their categories of thought of of no possibility for resurrection is to say, what changed their mind? What changed their mind was sitting with, face to face, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Only an encounter with the living Lord would have overcome their unbelief. Only seeing Jesus face to face could convince them that death had been defeated. Only sitting and beholding Jesus with their own eyes could have dramatically and categorically changed that equation. Where it was life minus resurrection equals despair. Now a new equation has emerged. Life plus resurrection equals hope. Life plus resurrection equals hope. Look what happens next. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. What happens? Their hope is restored, and what do they do? They go right back out on that road and run all the way back to Jerusalem. They've just walked all the way back, and it's nighttime, but they go all the way back. Why? Hope. Hope has changed them. Everything has changed. And they want to go back and make sure all of the disciples know that Jesus is alive. They go right back down that seven-mile road to tell everyone the good news. And as they bust in the door, before they can even tell the disciples their good news, what happens? The other disciples tell them their good news. Hey, Jesus has risen. Peter has seen him. And they're like, you're not going to believe it. We've seen Jesus too. Do you see what's happening? Before anyone sees Jesus, everyone is dejected, despondent, and then the reality of the resurrection steps into their life. And with that comes the defeat of death, the cure for the curse, and all of that comes flooding in and no one can contain their hope. They must tell, they must run, they must go. Resurrection is what gets hope unstuck. Do you guys remember the headlines about a year and a half ago when the cargo ship, the Ever Given, was stuck in the Suez Canal and it shut down like trade routes globally for six days? Billions of dollars were lost. You couldn't find anything at the stores. Well, the Ever Given is a massive container ship. It's 1,300 feet long, weighs 200,000 tons, and it holds 20 containers. So to put that in perspective, that's the Empire State Building blocking this uh, canal. And the reason it got stuck because there was a, uh, a wicked windstorm and they lost sight of their bearing and it ran aground and it blocked the Suez Canal for six days. Do you know what ultimately got that huge, massive container ship unstuck? Little, unimpressive tugboats. Little tugboats. If you see a, if you were to uh, uh, put a tugboat next to this ship, it looks incredibly insignificant and unimpressive. Like a tugboat shows up and you're going, yeah, not going to happen. But these little tugboats, these little tugboats can pull thousands of tons beyond their own stature. That's what we see going on here. That's Jesus. When you look at him, the Bible tells us he's, 
seemingly insignificant and unimpressive. Jesus was a nobody from nowhere who died a common yet gruesome death. He wasn't the first nobody. People often think that he was the only one ever crucified. They crucified thousands before him. They crucified thousands after him. Through his righteous life, his penalty-bearing death and death-defeating resurrection, Jesus pulls thousands of tons beyond his own stature. Friends, every historian, whether you read Roman, Jewish, or Christian, who are writing at this time, all agree and affirm on this point. The Jewish historian Josephus, the Roman historian Tacitus, and Pliny the Younger, and all the gospel writers, all of them agree on this one point. That there was a man named Jesus who grew up in the backwater town of Nazareth. He was crucified and killed during the time of Pontius Pilate. It is a historical fact that Jesus died. Now you have to ask, would a forever dead Jesus create Christianity? If Jesus had died and stayed dead, would we have what we know today as Christianity? Would a forever dead Jesus embolden, dejected, and dispersed disciples to start the greatest movement of faith of all time? Would a forever dead Jesus have led the disciples, every one of them, to die a martyr's death? I would argue no. That only a risen indeed Jesus could get this movement unstuck. When Jesus died, it was stuck. Dead on arrival, not going anywhere. And it took a risen Savior to get it unstuck. If you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, if you're here this morning, I'm really glad you're here. This is a place for doubters and skeptics. But if you don't believe that, the burden of proof is actually on you to explain how a nobody crucified on a Roman cross started the world's most prolific movement of all time. You have to come up with a better explanation than resurrection. Think about it. He's born in poverty. He lived about 33 years. Most of his life is in abject obscurity. Like we don't even know 30 years of his life. Because it was unimportant at the time. He never wrote a book. He never held public office. He was crucified as an enemy of the state between two common thieves. And yet, 2,000 years later... Billions upon billions of people have built their life on the groundbreaking reality that he didn't stay dead. And you have to come up with an explanation for what would account for that. We often forget that thousands upon thousands of people were crucified on Roman crosses and none of us know their stories. We don't even know their names. Most of them were left for dead as the birds pecked at their body. Thousands of others were put in mass graves. And we don't know any of their stories. None of them. Why? Because when they died, they stayed dead. There was no reason to tell their story. So what reason would there be to tell Jesus' story? Without the resurrection of Jesus, the burden of proof is on you. To explain how a nobody from nowhere transformed a group of nobodies from nowhere into the largest movement of followers uh, across time, geography, language, ethnicities that the world has ever seen. What would account for that? In the wake of the death of Christ, his followers were left leaderless, they were scattered, and they were in utter despair. I think that's the whole point that we have for Luke 24, is to tell you resurrection was what changed their lives. Something awakened them. Something compelled them. Something got them up off of their 
uh, of their seats of despair and sent them with vigor and urgency to tell everyone. Peter, the leader of disciples, during the crucifixion of Jesus, he denied him three times. And at the, at the, uh, at, after his crucifixion, he went into hiding. But what do you see 50 days later? You see Peter with boldness preaching to the very people he was so fearful of, telling all of them to repent and believe in the resurrected Lord Jesus. Thomas, the doubter, you remember him? He was the one who said, I'll never believe unless I put my fingers in those nail holes. And what happens? He puts his fingers in those nail holes and he is transformed from Thomas the doubter to Thomas the apostle. And he becomes the first missionary to India. Look at James, his half-brother. Imagine living in that shadow, right? He hated Jesus. He was ashamed of Jesus. But what happens? After he saw the resurrected Jesus, not only did he believe in him, but he calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. And he went on to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Friends, what I'm trying to tell you is something happened to change their lives. Something happened to uproot the deeply held belief that when you die, you stay dead. Something uprooted, pulled out that old belief and put in a new belief that death had finally been defeated by the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Life plus resurrection equals hope. Friends, Luke 24 is a seven-mile road story that changed everything for two weary disciples. That's why we planted the church here in Waltham. That's why Seven Mile Melrose was planted. That's why we're continuing to give everything we have to see more and more churches planted, missionaries sent out. Because we are a part of that same Seven Mile Road story. We want to come along people, our friends and neighbors on hopeless roads, on their Seven Mile Road. And introduce them to the real Jesus. So that when they hear the hope of resurrection, they too would be filled with hope. In John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Friends, this is a profound statement. Do you see what Jesus does there? He doesn't point to some pathway. He doesn't point to a moral code. He doesn't say, look, if you do more good than bad, you'll get a pass to heaven. He didn't say, look, ultimately all religions really lead to the same place. No. He doesn't say pick one and it will work out for you. Jesus makes an exclusive claim. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you're looking for life, if you're looking for resurrection, it's right here. It's exclusive. Yet at the same time, he makes an inclusive offer. He says, whoever... No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if you will believe in me, though you die, yet you shall live. Friends, do you believe this? If you're not a Christian here, I want to challenge you this morning to answer the question. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then what happened? What happened 2,000 years ago that changed everything? And I know there's a lot of questions that surround Christianity, but, but this is the question. 
Don't get hung up on any other question. This is the central question. All other questions that you have, they're important, but they sit under this question. What happened 2,000 years ago? Did Jesus stay dead? If he did, Christianity is the lamest hobby in the entire world. If he didn't, then it's worth building your life around. It's the most profound reality-altering truth in the entire world. And you owe it to yourself to consider that question with intentionality and honesty. And if you are a Christian and you believe that death has been swallowed up by the life of Jesus Christ, if you believe that there is life after life after death, here's the application. Start living like it. Start living like it. This is not just for Easter Sunday. The resurrection is not simply a later belief for when you die, like good news at the end. It's actually a belief for today. See, if Jesus can defeat death, if he can free us from the gridlock of death, that means he can bring healing to our marriages. That means he can give us meaning and purpose in our careers. That means he can transform the everyday grind of life into something beautiful and meaningful and purposeful. Because you're undergirded by a belief that ultimately life never gets so stuck as to vanquish the hope of life. And when you live with that kind of hope, that kind of hope changes everything. Let's pray.